Listen up, real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and agents. You're in the right place. Unlocking the secrets to real estate investing and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the Titanium Vault, hosted by RJ Bates III. Here's RJ. Hello and welcome to the Titanium Vault. I'm your host, RJ Bates. Today I'm sitting down with Cody Sanchez. Cody, how are you doing? Hi, RJ. Thanks for having me. Life's good, my friend. <laughs> Life is good. So why don't you take a second to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. So, uh, you know, RJ, I don't know about you. I've never been very good at uh, coloring inside of the lines or fitting inside of one box in particular. And so my background is a little bit multi-pronged, which I think is probably the way we were supposed to be. I, uh, I run an international investment business in Latin America. I uh, sit on the board of a venture capital fund focused on Latin America. I um, spend a lot of my time when I'm not building building investment businesses, angel investing in startups, advising and consulting with startups. And then at my website, CodySanchez.com, I talk about how to build businesses where you get to sort of adventure for a living, different ways to bring in cash flow that aren't tying you to a cubicle, uh, as well as lots of the mistakes I made on my way to wherever I am now. So those are kind of my, my three prongs. International investment management, venture capital, angel investing, and then giving back through speaking, blogging, writing about how to build businesses that are full of fun. Awesome. Let's go back to the start. So how did you how did you come up with this three prong approach and, and how did you get into each one of those prongs? Sure. So, you know, I think most of us didn't grow up thinking like, I don't know, Elon Musk, that we were going to be a scientist and figure out a way to save the human race, right? We, right. we had we had paths that were a little bit more varied. And so mine was certainly like that. I was a journalist uh, in a past life. And so the beginning part of my career was actually spent along the U.S.-Mexico border writing stories about human trafficking and struggle and strife. And after uh, we wrote a few stories and, and got some press and awards, I quickly realized that we may write about these stories and they may be broadly circulated, but they might not make much change. And so I wanted to figure out, well, where are the where are the keys to power that allow things to happen to people one way or the other in life? And what I realized, young-ish, is that I think that there is one language that everybody speaks, and, and it's green. Um, and so <laughs> I wanted to figure out how power flows, and the language I think power speaks is money. And so I found my way to finance, and sort of like an investigative journalist, I've been climbing my way up the ladder there. Um, for the past 10 years, trying to figure out how do people break into this world of financial freedom, which I think is the undercurrent to all freedom. And then once you do, uh, where can you apply leverage in order to build incredible lives for yourselves and others? So what was the first thing that you did when you, when you realized that was kind of the path that you wanted to take? What was the first step that you took to, to go down that path? <clears throat> well, um, anytime I 
I want to try something new. It's typically first because um, I'm following my curiosity. I'm really big on, you know, sort of your internal gut, knowing the things that that you just find intriguing. And if you find things intriguing enough, you're going to learn enough and surround yourself by it enough in order to become really good at it. Um, but if you don't find things interesting or curious, then I think it's probably not the thing that you should be spending your life in the pursuit of, even if you think it could make you a lot of money. And, um, and so, you know, once my curiosity was found on the way to finance, I did kind of what I always do when I want to make a pivot or when I want to get really smart about something. Um, I think in life you can either go and spend the 10,000 hours that it takes to become an expert in something, or you could take the shortcut, which would be find the people who have already spent 10,000 hours and get to know them and pick their brains and figure out how they did it. And so the first move into finance was, okay, who do I know that's in investing, that's in finance, that understands this game? And once you're kind of particular on asking that question, the network that you have, six degrees of separation sets in. And you realize that you have lots of entrance in this world just by asking, who do you know in finance? Who do you know in investing? So that's it. I reached out. I went to a, uh, I'm Latina, so leverage some sort of niche like if you speak Spanish, if you're an athlete formally, if you, um, know, are, are a woman, whatever your unique aspect is, if you can leverage the groups in that road, and that's what I did. I went to a conference for Latinas in finance, sat next to a recruiter of all people for, must have not sounded like a complete idiot, RJ, because she decided to hire me and, uh, you know, went through an interview process and found my way in finance from there. Wow. That's, uh, it's uh, a, a good luck of the draw there to be sitting right next to a recruiter when, when you're wanting to break into a, a new field. So when you were hired, what, what position were you hired yeah. into and what were you doing? Well, first I would say, um, I would say more than anything, you know, luck sort of happens when, you're prepared and you consistently put yourself in areas to get lucky, right? You know, it's just like, um, it's like anything in life. If you want to go, if you want to catch a fish, like you're probably going to get luckier. The more you fish, the better that you fish, the more tools you have for fishing, the more you read about the best places to go. And so that was my, that was my idea for um, how to get into finance was if you want to play a game, you, you, you go to where the game is played. And so I just tried to put myself in as many situations where I could get lucky. Um, and so the first job I was hired into, I had to interview uh, against a bunch of really smart kids. So I went to my, my parents, you know, my father is, is from Spain originally, his family. And so, you know, I come from a family of immigrants. And so I went to state school in Arizona for undergrad. I went to Arizona State. And, you know, my dad didn't get to go to college and I did. And so this was a great opportunity for me. Um, but, uh, I was up against for a rotational program, a group of, I don't know, you know, 40 to 50 other candidates from lots of Ivy league schools and, 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 you know, against people who just knew a lot more than I did. And, um, and so being a journalist, uh, 
I just spent hours and hours at night asking really stupid questions to Google at the time about mutual funds and investing and what does this mean and what does this mean? And, um, and was pretty honest about the fact that I didn't know a lot to the recruiter, but like, let somebody try to outwork me. No way. And, uh, and so I got hired into this rotational development program which I would totally recommend if somebody's looking to change industries uh, because you get to rotate through like five to seven areas of a company to see which area you like the best. And so I got, again, I got really lucky in getting able to review an industry quickly and get what might've been a few years of job experience in one, essentially. Awesome. So where did that transition you in your career path? What happened after you did the, the rotational development there? Yeah, so let's see. So at that time, uh, so this was actually, I, I graduated um, from undergrad in 2008. So it was the financial crisis, right? So I graduated in arguably the worst year for anybody to get a job out of school. Right especially in finance. And so, you know, people were dropping like flies everywhere. People were getting fired all over the place. Um, and I was at the time speaking to investors, you know, retail investors like you and I on the phone. And, you know, if you could imagine RJ, they, uh, you know, they were, they were crying, um, because they weren't going to be able to pay their rent and they didn't understand these financial investments that they were in. And they were asking me like, how did, how did the company I was at, did they steal their money? Um, you know, and these were mutual funds, right? Nobody was stealing anybody's money, but, uh, they didn't realize the risk that was inside of them if anybody did. Right. And, um, so, so I was in that particular job. And at the time, um, what I realized is that, I don't love math, uh, to be perfectly frank. I've never been, you know, really into waking up in the morning and reading the Wall Street Journal and looking at what stocks went up or down. Never really been my jam, but I love engaging with people. I love sales and I love figuring out how big strategic, you know, political events, let's say, could affect people's investments. Um, and so I realized, well, maybe what I'd be good at as a former communicator and journalist is the sales aspect of finance. And it seems to me, if your listeners are mostly real estate professionals, you guys know this all too well, you always want to be in a profit center, not a cost center. And so if you're in sales and you're bringing in money, that means you're going to make more money. If you're in a cost center like risk or compliance or operations or administration, there are only things to operate on or administer when there are sales coming in. So you're a cost center. So I kind of looked at this and thought, well, I could be an analyst looking at the numbers all day, but not necessarily making us money. Or I could go bring us in money, be a profit center, and probably be in a better position to negotiate, to make more, and to understand this language of money. And so, um, so I went into financial sales. And I sold at the time uh, investments to financial advisors and climbed relatively quickly there. And then I got recruited to Goldman right as they were going through their Senate hearing. So that was, that was an interesting time to be at probably the, the company that there was more focus on than any other during the financial crisis. Right. So what, would, what was that like at that time frame for you as someone coming on to Goldman Sachs? What was that like for you? 
Well, I mean, it was wild, right? If you, if you guys remember 2008 and real estate in particular, like we mm. weren't sure we were going to get out of the crisis, right? right? You know, people, banks were closing every day. Um, you know, I remember, you know, at the time I had lots of friends that worked for Countrywide, right? Which now doesn't exist, I don't think. And, and you know, and they were doing mortgages. And, um, and so it was, it was the, the epitome of uncertainty. And I think all of us have a little bit of PTSD after 2008, right? Like <laughs> right. We, we, we think that uh, the sky is going to fall again because we've seen it fall once and, and it scars us. It left some marks. And so at the time, there was certainly that at Goldman. But I've always believed if you go where the A players are, where the smartest and best people you can find are, it's kind of like buying. Um, it's kind of like buying a little mini PhD. You know, if in real estate, if if you want to make money, my father, who's in commercial real estate, always told me like, you want to go to where the best houses are in the best neighborhood and whatever, even if you're buying the crappiest house, right? right. Like that's probably a good move to make. And so I think it's the same way in in life and in finance. I wanted to go to where the smartest people were, even if I was the smallest and the least intelligent or the crappiest house on the block, right? And so when Goldman came calling, even though they had all this noise around them, I thought, you know what? The smartest people are still there. So I want to go there and learn. So I went and, um, and it was certainly hard to sell during that time, but um, I learned a ton while making money, which is always a good thing to have happen at the same time. Right. And Real quick, I, I want to go back and touch on something. It, 2007 and 2008 is probably the most frequently mentioned years on my on my podcast. It'd be it real estate or, or like you being in finance. People talk about what happened in those years and the impact that it had on their lives, but also the lessons that they learned during that time. And, and you're right. A lot of people in 2008 and even early 2009, they didn't know if they were going to make it through it or not. They, nobody really knew what was going to happen, but because it did happen now, looking back and, you know, we're, you know, nine, 10 years from that time frame, there's so many people that have learned lessons from it and have created better businesses because of what happened at that time. And I think it's so important for maybe for listeners who did not or, or weren't in, in an industry that were impacted during that time to listen to some of the guests who were involved in real estate or financing or, or whatever it was during that time that really it impacted their lives to learn from it and realize it, maybe it won't be as drastic. But if there is a downturn or a correction in the different markets, to understand that to not leverage yourself out and where you can survive through another downturn similar to that. And so for, for someone who's in financing, what did, and I know this is, this might be a very difficult question for you to answer because it sounds like you were just getting into financing, but what is something that maybe you learned from 2007 and 2008 compared to what you're doing nowadays? Sure. Well, I mean, I think there's probably three things that are really important, which is um, all of these are common sense, but they're just not common practice. And so the first one would be you always want to buy low and sell high. And it sounds really simple in any industry, except nobody does it. 
We right. all buy when things are euphoric because we, we feel like they're going to continue and we don't want to buy when things are beaten down. But the thing is, pain doesn't last. And so um, I try now to make sure that I always am buying when things are beaten up and then selling before I want to. And that's kept me going far. The, the second thing would be always have dry powder on the side. Always have some cash on hand for when you see those 10 times market opportunities. And they don't come along so often. But history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So if you can have money on the side for when you see the next sort of beaten down market, and then lastly, you can have courage when most people have fear, and have fear when most people have greed, you'll go really far. So those are sort of three axioms that I try to apply to my life. So when everybody's really stoked about some sort of investment, I typically don't buy it. When everybody is really fearful, I'm kind of interested. And when everybody is leveraged or has no money on the side, I start pulling money on the side, I start selling, because I know there's gonna be a time when the market will revert again. All right, so I have two questions based off of what you just said. Sure. First, I, I love the the phrase that you said you you want to sell before you want to. I, yeah. Explain why that's the case. Well, um, I think we nobody can ever time the bottom or the top of the market. I mean, if you did, you wouldn't be on podcasts. You know, I'd be on my jet on my way to my yacht on my right. island, right? Like, so anybody that says that they can tell you when the bottom's going to be and the top's going to be, I'm like, all right, buddy, I know not to listen to you now. Um, and so if you can't time the bottom or the top, that means that all you're trying to do is focus on general zones. And so you want to sell before you want to, because if you don't, sell before you want to, you're going to be at a, you're going to see the reversion of the mean. So you're going to right. see the, the, the market turn back around. So I'm always trying to leave a little bit of the upside on the table. And I did this, you know, I got in kind of early to some of the cryptocurrencies and, um, and I sold and, and I, you know, who knows, they may go up way higher than that. I've left like some money in there that I will, will not love to lose, but don't care enough. Uh, if, if I do lose it, but, um, I, I like the idea of buying things when people still think it's crazy. And then the second the shoe shine guy or, you know, my <laughs> checkout lady is telling me to buy something. I'm like, I, I don't know. That just seems, that seems like I got to sell now, even though you guys are probably going to go in, uh, still. Well, you stole my second question because my second question was going to be about cryptocurrency because it seems like it's, it's all the rage nowadays. Everybody's talking about it. You're right. I mean, literally everybody's talking about it, and, and it seems like everybody becomes an expert as soon as they invest $100 into Bitcoin. Um, yeah. And I was going to ask you, what are your feelings about cryptocurrency right now? It sounds like you, you have sold already, but you're going to keep a little bit in there. Is that because of all of the activity and everybody's buying in now? That's kind of your, your motto is to get out at that point. Well, so I think there's two different, there's like two very different things um, to think about when it comes to cryptocurrencies. There's like the price of Bitcoin and the price of different cryptocurrencies. And then there's the underlying technology and blockchain. 
Now, I'm super fascinated by blockchain. And I think the right. underlying technology is going to be a game changer for industries, potentially for governments, certainly for companies, and probably for me and you. So I keep money in play in crypto because I want to stay abreast of what's happening from a technological standpoint and see if there's ways to make money on the technology. When it comes to the price of Bitcoin, to be honest, it's very possible that I'm just not smart enough. I have no idea how to value that thing. I, right. I have no idea. So I, I can't tell you what it's inherently worth because I have no way to value it. And so um, I've always tried to invest in things that I know, that I understand, that's a, that's a yard I play in. And anytime I end up investing in things that I don't understand, I seem to get in trouble um, because it turns out that you don't usually get lucky then. Uh, you know, I, I really feel like if you invest and make money, there's like not a lot of sh shortcuts. It, it's a lot of um, self-restraint, self-knowledge, and then a self-process for buying and selling. So, so that's why. I mean, I think, you know, if you guys are listening and you are really good at real estate, do real estate. You know, maybe find an underlying way to utilize the blockchain technology. Find an underlying way to have an ICO be part of your, you know, I don't know, rewards system for your users, or or find a way for for you to use an ICO to, you know, do to do some sort of launch for your company. All that's cool. Cool. But use your knowledge to invest in the things that you know, not to try to make a hot dollar off of something that you really don't understand. Right. I had a guest on here who is a real estate investor, and and he's kind of outspoken about his feelings about cryptocurrency. And I wouldn't say he's against it, but his point was, if I have $100,000 to invest, and I'm going to invest it in real estate, and I know because of a proven track record within real estate that I'm going to convert that $100,000 into $200,000, if I'm going to take that same $100,000 and I'm going to hope that it converts to $200,000, and I don't really understand why it's going to convert to $200,000 in cryptocurrency, I need to keep my money invested in real estate because that's what I understand and that's what I'm good at. And... You know, at the end of the day, maybe we'll look back at this interview five years from now and we'll say, man, we were dum-dums for saying the things that we said about cryptocurrency. But in all reality, like you said, if you don't understand it, don't do not do it because you're hoping or you're guessing at it. Like you said, 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. You know, if, if you want to indulge yourself in it and really become an expert and fully understand and then you're making educated investments, then do it. But don't just do it because you see somebody on Facebook say, hey, you need to go buy Tron or you need to go buy <laughs> Ripple or, or whatever it is. You know, every week I see a new one that's the hot one that you're supposed to be buying. And I don't really understand how these people know that. And I don't think they do either. So, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, again, we could be wrong, but um, I'd rather be wrong and proud of the ways I make money. I think right. so. That's just there's so many ways to make money. You know, I'm I, I like being able to say, here's why I think I did it. Here's why I think it matters. Here's why I think there's a value that has been derived from me spending my life pursuing something. Right. I, I think one of the, it, you know, obviously I have a successful real estate investing business and I, I plan on only becoming more successful within real estate because I understand it. It's my passion. It's something that I understand. I think I would be slightly embarrassed if I went to my family and said, 
I am now extremely wealthy because I bought something and I don't really understand. It just became more money and that's really basically all I understand about it. I, I, I don't think that would be something I'm proud of. Within real estate investing, I'm very proud of what I do. I can I, I can explain it to anybody and talk about it for hours upon hours. And, and so that's just kind of my feelings of, about cryptocurrency. So outside of that, let's get back on point. We have a <laughs> trail there, but you know, it's kind of all the rage nowadays. So it's easy to talk about. So let's get back to your story. Um, where did you go from Goldman Sachs? What was your next step within your career? Um, so from there, you know, I, I grew uh, in that business uh, working on a few different types of investment products. So they're private equity, hedge funds, um, selling a product called an exchange traded fund as well, and um, and did that to really large institutional investors on the West Coast. Then, you know, what I realized at the time was I learned a lot from being at, at Goldman, but I really wanted to sell um, investments to like the world's biggest investors. I wanted to sell to companies like Apple, Facebook. I wanted to sell to pensions like Calsters and Calpers. And these are people who manage, you know, billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And, and so in order to do that, um, I needed to go to another firm. And so, you know, kind of a funny story, but for most of the jobs that I've had, you know, maybe your listeners can relate. Like, I wasn't all that qualified, really. You know, I'm not sure I was the <laughs> best investor to go to Goldman. I, I certainly wasn't the best to get my first job at Vanguard. Um, but what I made up for in not being knowledgeable enough was just a, sort of a relentlessness and a pleasant persistence in going after the things that I want. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of amazed. And, and like, I want somebody to challenge me on this and show me that I'm wrong. But um, I get a decent amount of emails, you know, every week on my website asking for, you know, how did I get this job? How do I travel for a living? And, you know, how did I, was I able to make this deal or make this amount of money or whatever the case may be? And, um, and what amazes me, RJ, is that most people ask those questions. And now I have a process that's kind of like, hey, I'll help you out on whatever it is you want, figuring out this for your business, figuring out how to get this next job. Um, but you gotta, you gotta show me something too. I'll take two steps if you take one. And so I'll usually give them a little homework. Like, Hey, will you, uh, all right, read, read these couple articles and get back to me or synthesize this. Tell me your main questions and then get back to me. Or here's a couple steps, do this, then let's talk. How many people do you think actually do those tasks? Probably less than 10% because I do the same thing. When people <laughs> ask me how they want to get started in real estate. I pick a random book. It doesn't even have to be relevant to what they're asking. A lot of times it's like rich dad, poor dad or something like that. I'm like, go read that book and come back and tell me what you did. What did you learn from that book? Yeah. Most of the time I never hear from that person again. I know it's so sad, isn't it? So it is, you know, you, you gotta be the one to take the first step on your goals and then the world opens to you with people that are willing to help you. Um, but so the same thing. I mean, I, I think it's even less than 10. I, I think it might be 1%. Right. So well, maybe I'm making the homework too hard. But, um, <laughs> but when I was at Goldman, I, I wanted this job at State Street that I was totally unqualified for. And so I, I found the manager that was hiring and I just started bothering him. You know, I was like, I'll fly myself to San Francisco. I'll meet you there. So I did. 
met him there, then would like send him everything, you know, something every two weeks. So every two weeks I would be kind of pinging him and would be sending him ideas like, hey, I saw your competitors doing this. How about this? Or my client says this. How about this? I'd have a client ping him and say, you're crazy not to hire Cody. So I would just inundate this guy, right? And so finally the guy, you know, takes takes my second meeting and flies me to Boston and is like, well, you know, I can't not hire you because you have made it impossible for me with all these people bothering me all the time for the job. Um, and he didn't give me the job that I wanted, but he gave me a really great job that ended up turning out to be a, a, a better opportunity than I thought. Um, and so, you know, what had turned in, what had started as him turning me down for two things ended with a great opportunity in Boston where I was heading the um, Southwest division for uh, institutional investors selling our investment products. So I was, you know, running around to big companies selling them investments. And at the time I saw this opportunity, our firm didn't have a presence in Latin America. And I'm really, really passionate about emerging markets and Latinos as I am one. So I came to them and said, hey, I'm doing pretty good here. You know, I was one of the top producers, if not the top producer in the institutional sales group. And, um, and I said, you don't have to pay me anything else, but uh, let me go and build this thing in Latin America for you. And if I don't do a good job, it's no harm, no foul. You don't, you know, you're not paying me anything. But if I do a good job, I want a percentage of the revenue. So they kind of said, all right, whatever, Cody, she's going to annoy us until we give her what she wants. So fine. So I went and started building out that group. Um, and building out that group led my current company, um, my CEO, to, to reach out to me and say, hey, we want you to head this entire business or first trust, build it out. We'll give you all the resources. Um, and that's how I got to be in, in my current role um, and running this company is uh, by partnering with the CEO of, uh, of this company, First Trust, for Latin America. Wow. That's, that's pretty impressive. And it all goes back to your tenacity and your your drive, right? I mean, you're you're pretty open about the fact that maybe you weren't the most talented person for the position at the time or the most qualified, but because of your desire and your mindset, you were able to accomplish things that maybe you didn't even feel like you could accomplish. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a good, it's the good side of fake it till you make it. It doesn't mean lie, cheat, or steal about what you've done. It means um, even if you feel like you are not the number one uh, qualified candidate, grit and persistence, and like you said, tenacity will win every day. And it's, it's not that I felt super confident. I just kind of was like, well, you know, I've always asked myself three questions, RJ, which are... Um, uh, always ask for what you want. Assume you just might get it and assume what would it look like if it was easy? And so with like those three questions, I just kind of go after opportunities because you manage a, a real estate business. You know about hiring people like right. managers are starved for hungry driven candidates. Like I will take hunger, drive and curiosity over intellect any day yeah absolutely uh, it, going back to the three questions you always ask yourself the way i always put it is always ask because if you don't the answer is always no uh -huh. you're never going to get told yes if you never ask the question and uh this podcast has been a kind of a 
a tool to that, like testing my abilities to always ask, because a lot of times I have to go out and ask people like you to be a guest on this podcast. Totally. And, and you never know what the answer is going to be, but you never know what's going to come from these types of interviews, getting to know each other, relationships that can be built from, you know, just asking a simple question. And it's so important in business to always keep that in, in the forefront of your mind when you're, when you're representing yourself on social media, how you represent yourself and you never know who's reading what you're writing and what you're saying and how that could impact later on when you need to ask them for, ask them a question because that could really impact your business so significantly. And as both you and I have raised, you've raised more money than I've raised, <laughs> but, but I've also raised money myself and, and you, it's so important on how you carry yourself and then how you present that to them. Uh, for, like you said, a lot of our majority of our listeners are real estate investors, but you've raised billions of dollars. What is a tip that you would give to people when they're going out and they're trying to raise private capital? What is it? What is something that you've used or, or kind of like rules that you have for raising capital? Sure. I mean, well, the first one is like, shut up. Uh, I think too often as salespeople, you talk a lot and thankfully being a journalist, you're secondary in every conversation. And so as a salesperson, if you can just remind yourself, like, shut up, silence is okay. Right. And to really listen to the other person, they're going to give you all the secrets if you let them on how to sell them. So I think the biggest fallacy in raising money and sales in general is that what gets something sold is what the other person knows about you, about your product, about your business, whatever. The truth is that what gets someone sold is what they think you know about them. Do they think that you understand and know them? And if you can flip that in your brain and realize that what's going to get them sold is them feeling like you intimately know them, you'll close way more business than you ever anticipate. Right. And you'll close business for a long time and you'll have loyalty of your clients. You can sell a lot of stuff by shoving something down somebody's throat quickly but you can't sell for longevity right. by selling and shoving something down somebody's throat quickly. So I've learned, keep it quiet, listen, remember it's about them, not you, and what you know, and then have a process. Uh, I don't think it has to be my process. In fact, I know it doesn't, but you need to have a touch process if you're going to sell big dollar amounts. You know, if you're going to sell $10, $100, even $1,000, you know, to $5,000 things, um, you, you don't have to know every one of your clients intimately. If you're going right. to sell millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, you need to know those buyers intimately because it's the 80-20 rule, right? So you're going to get 80% of your business from 20% of your clients. Those 20% you need to know like your partner. And mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm very big on how I touch my clients. And that means I have a, a, a sales funnel. I have a drip campaign. I have a um, mission statement about what we speak about. I have a CRM 
client relationship management system and I have a pipeline and I have a touch list showing how often I've touched them and what types of touches they've been. And so it sounds like a lot to start with. You can pick one aspect of it, um, but I would really focus on, are you listening? Do you know them more than they know you? And how frequently and with what kind of contact are you touching them? Right. And in, in those moments of truth, when you're having those face-to-face meetings or, or you're directly touching them outside of the drip campaigns and the funnels and things like that, but when you're face-to-face and you're having that moment of truth, like you said, listen. Like if, if someone were to come to me and ask me to borrow $100,000, I'm going to ask them exactly what I want to know. Mm-hmm. I don't need you to sell me on it. I'm an investor. I'm already willing to do it. Don't sell me on that. Yeah. I'm going to ask you specific questions. And when you give me the answers, if they're the answers that I want to hear, then I'm going to invest in whatever it is. And I have a very specific personality. <laughs> that might not be the case for everybody, but they're also going to tell you what they need out of it. And that's the most important part about raising private capital. Um, obviously for you, you've been highly successful. You've raised billions of dollars over the last 10 years and in all kinds of different investments and asset management and things along those lines, which is amazing. And, uh, so I appreciate you sharing that with, with our listeners because, it is so important to to heed your advice there on constantly touching them and listening to them, to your clients or your investors or whatever it is on what it is they want to hear from you. Um, so that being said. Well, thank uh, you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> so now that you are, you're in your new position, what is it that you are currently doing in Latin America? Sure. So um, we've built this company over the last four years. And, and essentially um, what we do is we sell investments to big sovereign wealth funds, pensions, mutual funds, and um, we use our proprietary investments, so investments that we create, and we help them achieve whatever their investment goals are down south. So I'm predominantly in countries like Chile, Colombia, Peru, Brazil, Mexico, working with these big investors on how to create investment portfolios to match their goals. Um, And we've done that over the past four years, raised quite a bit of money doing it, which has been great. And I think giving clients a really incredible experience um, as not getting stuff pushed upon them, but as having a partner to sort of manage through these volatile markets and emotional times like we're in in the in the stock market and then i also do um, i'm a venture partner at a at a company called magma partners and so there we're a venture capital fund that's focused on uh, latin american um, either based or with an office companies tech companies that uh have their tech teams outsourced to Latin America and sell into the US or around the world predominantly. So it's it's one of the most, I would say probably the most prominent um, seed or early stage investing venture capital firms in Latin America. And the greatest part about that company is Latin America is so misunderstood by a lot of investors in the US that the valuations or the the price that you're able to buy these startup companies for is, you know, 
sometimes 10 times cheaper than what you could get the same company with the same revenue with the same projections for in the U.S. And it's just called home bias. It's a bias that we have based on where we're from and what we know. And so I think this venture capital fund is going to be really interesting going forward uh, because the world is getting more and more global and tech and um, employees are getting more expensive in the U.S. So this will be a model that I think will be really interesting for the decades to come. What is the driving force behind your passion for creating this in Latin America? Um, well, you know, I think that I'm always looking for things that have 10 times solution. So I don't want to build something where I can only build the same or a little bit better than the other guy. I only want to build something if I think, man, we've got an unfair market advantage. This is so much better than what everybody else is doing that it's going to be a game changer. And so that venture capital fund, I think, is a game changer. Um, the business I, I'm building in Latin America with First Trust is a game changer. And those are the type of businesses that I like to advise and consult on um, because, you know, the, the size of your reward is directly proportionate to the size of the problem you solve. And so if you're solving big problems, you're going to be really compensated for it and you're going to build something that matters. And, and that, that just interests me way more than small standard ideas. Outside of your passion for creating these businesses in Latin America, <clears throat> What is your personal why and your driving force behind what you do in, in your career path? Sure. Well, um, I think one thing that maybe you and your listeners would agree with me on is I think that, that financial freedom is the key to all freedom. So I think it's really hard to care about self-actualization and your passion and your purpose if you don't have a roof over your head and you're hungry and you don't have, you aren't able to take care of your family. And so, um, you know, a large part of my why is being able to help as many individuals get to that level of financial freedom to where they are able to actually spend their lives using their unique skill sets and share them with the world. And so, you know, my why is, that's my why for me. I think as humans, we're all put here on this planet in order to be able to find the things that sing to us like a siren song and spend our lives in pursuit of them. And, you know, for me, I try to be very self-aware at my skill set and think, how can I use the skills that I've been given to the absolute best of my ability so that when I look back on my legacy or my tombstone, I'm proud of what I leave behind. And that doesn't mean it's going to have one title, but it means that, you know, when, I, when I'm at the end of my days, I want to be able to say, I left it all on the table. Uh, there's not one drop left. Well, it's clearly not going to have one title. I think you're already doing a pretty good job of that. <laughs> um, where do you want to be in five years from now? You know, you told me this question at the beginning, and I think it's so good. Um, it's that time of year where we all do goals and um, and goal planning. And so I've had a <clears throat> journal going back to 2012 where I've written out every year what my goals are for one, three, and five years. It's pretty cute when you look back and you think what your goals were, and then you're like, oh, God, I kind of achieved a lot of them. It's a, it's a cool feeling. <laughs> yeah. um, and so when I wrote them down this year, you know, my, my – 
my ideal life is one where I work when I want, where I want, on what I want, and with whom I want. Um, and so in five years, my ideal goal is that I've instituted that, that I've created systems around me in order to be able to fo focus on the aspects of my business that I love, to be able to outsource the things that are energy drainers, not energy adders, and to be able to continue to grow and build really game-changing companies with fellow strivers. Um, because I think, I think that is the best way. I'm super capitalist. Um, I think that is the best way to make an impact and give back is, is through capitalism and, and, and conscious built business building. And so if I can help a bunch of businesses grow, employ more people, provide better services, lower costs for good, provide innovative change, that to me is so much more beneficial than any charity work I could do because, you know, my portfolio companies are doing everything from solving, you know, the, the high cost of real estate in big cities to uh, working on hospitals, lessening the amount of contagious diseases inside of their hospitals to creating incredible excursions into Latin America to help provide better, um, better job opportunities in impoverished countries. So I think those are really cool ways to give back that I want to keep doing in five years. Man, that is, that is incredible. Um, I, I mean, I hope I did justice to your story today um, that, you know, I, I, I did quite a bit of research on, on your background and, and everything that you've accomplished uh, real quick, just for our listeners. Cause some might not know how old are you? I'm 31, 31. <laughs> I, I mean, that's phenomenal that you've been able to create all this uh, by the age of 31. And so stop it. Uh, you're going to give my, you're going to make my head too big, RJ. I got stuff <laughs> well, to do. Well, you know, it, it's kind of my job to, when I have guests on here, I, I always let them know, um, how impactful their story is. And I appreciate you sharing it today with our, with our listeners. Uh, obviously you have a much different background than the vast majority of, uh, guests that I have on the podcast, but, uh, this podcast was not created just for real estate investors. It's also for entrepreneurship and, and you are an investor and, and you, uh, bring a, a different background than the majority of our guests. And, and I appreciate you sharing everything that you did today. Uh, for anyone that's listening, if they want to contact you outside of CodySanchez.com, what's the best way they can contact you? Um, probably, I mean, I'm most active on Instagram, so at Cody Sanchez, which is C-O-D-I-E there. My email address is on my Instagram and on my website. Also, there's a resources page on my website that I should probably talk about more, but um, on it are all of the things I'm talking about. So if you want to build a personal brand, how? If you want to start building an international business, how? If you want to increase your revenue streams, let's say outside of real estate and add a few others, how? If you want to build a website, you know, for free in 24 hours, how? Um, I'm really into inspiration, but then I really like the tactics to make sure that you can act on them. So that's what you'll find there. Always finding a way to give back. That's a uh... That's pretty impressive. I mean, that's that's just you giving back to people and, and helping them out. I mean, that's free resources. So for everyone that's listening, 
if you're struggling in any way, go to CodySanchez.com, go to the resources and, and see if there's a solution on there. Um, and, and if there's something that's not on there, I bet you can send Cody an email and maybe she'll uh, post something a couple months later, giving you a solution to it. So sounds like a plan. We'll do. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to dig into more of yours. I need to learn more (laughs) about uh, real estate. So, uh, this will give me an opportunity and excuse to dig in. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, maybe there's an opportunity for us to work together in the future. I love there it. You go. I'm putting it, I'm putting it right out there in the works. open. That's perfect. It's, re, it's, re, it's recorded and it will forever be on iTunes. <laughs> so there you go. Exactly. All right, Cody. Well, I appreciate you uh, sitting down with us today and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, RJ. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Titanium Vault with your host, RJ Bates III. For more info and to stay up to date, visit www.podcast.thetitaniumvault.com and on facebook.com slash thetitaniumvault. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time on the Titanium Vault. Titanium Vault.